Welcome to the Truth to Power show and Radio for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. And with us today is guest co-host Jessica Hines of Meditative Writing. Welcome. Oh, hello. Welcome, welcome. And uh, today's guest is uh, Joe Gallen. Uh, Joe is a comedian and writer, uh, actor, uh, who has been writing and performing comedy for over 15 years. He's a founding member of the comedy troupe Fucked, F-U-C-T, and a teacher, coach, and director of sketch comedy and clowning. Thank you. Welcome, Joe. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, why don't we start the conversation off with the, all these different genres and talking about uh, clowning versus like traditional comedy and how you sure. envision um, 
or how it's envisioned uh, differently. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think there's definitely like a lot of approaches to clowning, a lot of different theories on uh, what is clown. Uh, One of the first things that I learned that I kind of held on to is the idea that uh, in most other forms of comedy, whether it's sketch or stand-up, improv, the the idea is that the comedian is presenting a joke or presenting an idea uh, for the audience to laugh at. Whereas for the clown, the clown is the joke. Uh, the clown gets up on stage, usually uh, with some understanding that there's an audience there uh, watching it. And the clown is telling the audience, laugh at me. Laugh at uh, my failures, my successes. Um, look look for the humanity in me to laugh at in yourself. Yeah, it's a very intimate form of comedy, I think. And that makes it much more accessible for many people because they can identify. Mm-hmm. And you were talking a little bit about... Uh, how death relates to comedy. Yeah. So if you could kind of tie it together. With, sure, sure. With uh, yeah. As I was saying, this is always, it, it's always a challenge for me to break this down. Uh, I think it came to me um, when I was first trying to figure out uh, as a writer, like what is funny? Um, and I looked at like a bunch of the things that I was laughing at at the time. And the theme that I found connected all was this idea of like death or tragedy. Uh, so let me go back. What I started thinking about was, okay, so we are all uh, animals. Um, so since we have laughter, uh, it must be some kind of, uh, evolutionary adaptation to something. Um, so I thought, okay, what is unique about humans as animals, uh, as opposed to other animals? And I thought of this idea, I forgot, there was a documentary I saw once and the name will come to me, uh, five minutes after I walk out of the studio. Um, but it's the idea that, uh, human beings can think temporally. We understand, like, we, we can think of our past, we can look to our future. And because of that, that, that being its own evolutionary survival skill, um, because of that, uh, we have the unique power to understand our own mortality uh, and know that we uh, will die someday. And most animals only understand their own death in moments of, like, fight or flight. Uh, like, there's a, a deer in the woods drinking water. Uh, suddenly some predator jumps out. Ah, now that deer uh, experiences the death instinct, uh, runs for its life, uh, flooded with adrenaline and other stress-inducing hormones. Uh, but as soon as that threat of death is gone, the deer goes right back to like chewing on leaves and drinking water. And it doesn't like hold on to that idea of like, oh my God, that, that could happen again at any moment. I could be walking through this woods and suddenly something will try to kill me. Uh, um, yeah, deers don't have a lot of anxiety or depression, no. which is really our ability to look forward towards yeah. death or yeah. at the back past exactly. towards it. So, yeah, exactly. So yeah. I, I deduced or assumed I started thinking about like, okay, so maybe this, maybe laughter is this uh, survival skill to keep us from being in a constant state, uh, as much as it serves that, of thinking that death is going to happen at any second. Um, I forget. I think it was actually a clown book that I was reading that talked about uh, laughter as the "it's okay" signal that that humans send uh, to themselves and to others. Or that the reason that laughter is audible is so that uh, that that "it's okay" signal can be sent to others, mm. um, and that that it that laughter and comedy and that feeling is basically like our counter to like flood our bodies with uh, with endorphins and good feeling hormones to kind of counter all of the negative stuff that our body fills up with any time it's thinking about death. Um, and then I started thinking about, like, well, what are the first things that uh, children laugh at, like, before they can conceptually understand what comedy or laughter really is? Yeah. Uh, peekaboo, which is, yeah. that's the first thing we do to get kids to laugh, which is basically scaring the crap out of them <laughs> by, by hiding. 
making them think, oh, this trusted person that you love, they're gone now, and now they're suddenly here scaring you. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a moment of like fright where, the, where a baby will like jump and then start laughing. Yeah. Uh, or this is, I'm pretty sure this is a universal thing, but like throwing a kid up in the air and catching them uh, usually gets them to laugh. And it's the same thing where it's suddenly like, you're unsafe. Ah, now you're safe. And that induces laughter. Uh, so it's like one of these first things that kids laugh at slapstick, uh, which we were talking about, like being like one of the, uh, I've heard it also being referred to as like the basis form of comedy. But seeing like somebody slip on a banana peel, there's this moment of, uh, oh, danger. There's some kind of danger happening there. But then usually in a good comedy, uh, clowns also talk about this like, okay, signal. What What is the thing that uh, you as the clown will do to cue the audience that you are okay? Um, usually it's some kind of eye contact, uh, something to like humanize that moment. Um, but that, that okay signal is then what actually induces the laughter. So you have to have that moment of, uh, fear before you can have the moment of laughter. Uh, yeah. And so I think more than all comedy is about death. I think all comedy is really about fear and all fear is about death. Like any, any fear we have is ultimately some semblance of the death fear. Mm. Well, that's really interesting because one of my, uh, I haven't particularly sat down to study comedy nearly on any level that you have, mm-hmm. but um, as you know, for for what I teach with my writers, um, I've stumbled into a lot of Jungian psychology, and mm-hmm. I don't know how much you've explored in that, but um, you know, Jung has this great uh, theory where he talks about shadows, which are mm-hmm. anything, any desire that we have that gets repressed inside of mm-hmm. us um, becomes the shadow, and one of the ways that the shadows are trying to escape and become united with the whole personality, the whole identity. Um, one of those ways is through comedy and okay. through laughter and this idea that, you know, um, we in safe spaces, which we might call like a stand up club or at like an improv show or something, when someone gives our, us permission mm-hmm. to look at the repressed part of ourselves, that um, that will lead to to comedy and laughter because similar to waiting in line to go on a roller coaster normally we wouldn't want to be like thrown around and whipped around Mm -hmm. in the air but in this space where it says like it's okay this is a safe space we can look at the part of ourselves in our society that are extraordinarily repressed and for some reason it feels like a safe place to do that and i feel like that's been really you know the past few years with comedy that's been happening a lot yep yeah Yeah, absolutely absolutely and I was going to say, uh, th- just for my audience, this is the April Fool's Day special <laughs> on uh, Ready for Brooklyn. I'm thinking about how April Fool's jokes became suddenly, so well, not suddenly, but, you know, like companies would get in on it and, mm-hmm. and try to make jokes that they, you know, put like fake news up on the on the mm-hmm. website. And yeah. then l- the day later, I think Google had done some stuff and how interesting how, uh, you know, we're all trying to get in on uh, pranking. It's uh, pranks, pranking as, an, as a com- comedic act is different from you know, making a joke, but kind of scaring you in a way, right. going along the lines of what you were saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that just makes me think of, like, uh, I know there's something else that I used to always teach, and this may be too soon to start talking about this, but the idea of uh, what is appropriate within the comedy world. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that is the big topic of the times right now. Uh, I know it's something that I'm constantly dealing with uh, in recent years, but uh, I, I know I would, I would always ask my students whenever they were like, what, what can you make a joke about? Mm. I'd always say, like, you have to think of, I think there were three things. I think it's like, uh, who, who, is the, who has the power in the scene? Mm. Or maybe it was just the two things. It was who has the power in the scene and why do you want to make that joke? Yeah. Uh, 
because pranking, I think, like, I know as a kid, I used to love those prank shows. The, like, the shows where, like, you'd see people, like, running on the street, kind of, like, pranking um, pe- random people on the street. And now I look at them and I'm like, that's just not right. That's yeah. totally, like, invading people's space, not getting their consent for laughter. And it's making the joke about this other person as opposed to, like, like yourself. And I'm, I'm re- looking back on those shows, I'm remembering how much of those shows relied on, like, laugh tracks to... Uh, that's another thing. I, I always think that... Uh, there are two kinds of laughs. There's the authentic laugh, and then there's the conditioned laugh. Uh, and the authentic laugh usually taps more into that, like, like fear, like personal fear self. The conditioned laugh, I feel like, is the thing that, like, you've been told this is funny, laugh at it. Uh, and I feel like anything that has a laugh track is, like, relying on that conditioned laugh of, like, you've heard this thing is funny once before. We're going to put laughs in there to remind you that it's funny so that you will be like, oh, yeah, I find this thing funny. Something within me is responding again to this thing that maybe once was funny. Uh, and I feel like all those prank shows, all the like like the really crazy slapstick, uh, like like the America's Funniest Video things, mm. they always need like laugh tracks or like the quick crazy boing sounds mm-hmm. to, like, to like give you that it's okay to laugh at this signal. Yeah. Right. So, so you were saying the things mm-hmm. that you're taking classes, uh, who has the, cause I'm definitely totally into this, yeah. like of, you know, as I've thought a lot about like what is appropriate to say or not. And I have my own theories. And so you said you want to identify who, who has the power, who has the, the power. And was there anything else to that? Or is that, the- um, well, I think, I think, uh, for me, it was, I'm thinking about this more as like an analyzing a student's, uh, scene. Uh, I want to make sure they understand who has the power in the scene. And I guess related to that is like who has the power in the modern standard, like mm-hmm. thinking about like uh, your audience eventually seeing the scene, um, mm-hmm. but who has the power and why are you making that joke? Um, yeah. I think yeah. it changes depending on like what the joke is that's being made. Gotcha. I mean, yeah. I definitely think it's very individual and it has and, and is definitely going to be affected by anything that's happening in the world mm-hmm. in the moment since we are now living in an age where, you know, news are alternative news can whip around the mm-hmm. world in a minute i'd be interested to know what i always talk about with some people which is not necessarily to say that you know this is right or wrong but i i was always interested in identifying you know i believe that there's two parts of a joke that can be funny which mm-hmm. is one is the subject matter which like poop poop is a funny thing it's a funny mm-hmm. word it sounds funny everyone in this room smiled when i said poop um it's a great subject matter uh and I can make a joke about poop where the joke itself isn't funny, but the subject matter is and people will laugh. Or I can make a joke about something that is not funny, you know, um, death, right? Or the loss of a loved one, right? But the construction of the joke can be funny and can be well constructed. And therefore, we can laugh at the fact that, oh, that's a funny joke, even though the subject matter in it of itself is not funny. Um, and that's something where I would have said five years ago, I would have always said, as long as one of those two things is funny, I think it's appropriate to say mm-hmm. it. And I do think that that's something, you know, that I've rethought in the past few years. And as someone who I feel like, you know, as a, as a woman and a member of the queer community, as a, and someone who is also, you know, bipolar and suffers from, um, a lot of brain differences. I just feel like, you know, I, I hit, I check a lot of those boxes of people who end up being the butt of those jokes. (laughs) And so I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that of like, is there, is there a rule or do you think there is one thing we can say that is like, it's, this is appropriate or not in the comedy world? Yeah. Uh, I'll say, but I want to answer that question. My mind is still thinking about like, (laughs) why is poop so funny? (laughs) Uh, And I, and, I don't need to dive deeper into that topic. Um, I don't, 
I don't think I have like a clear answer. And this ties a little bit into my, my uh, non-believing in absolutes. But um, I know there was a time when I first started out in comedy where I, where I held very strong to the belief that anything can be funny. Uh, that any, that you can, we can joke about anything. And there's a part of me that still holds on to some of that, uh, at least in theory. Um, but I, I think, uh, th- this is why that why was always so important to me. Um, because I feel like, why, why are you making this joke? Why do you want to make this joke? Guides, like what you can make fun of so much. So uh, intention has, you yeah. think intention has a lot to do with. I do because ultimately like, like y- you have to understand what the audience is going to laugh at or respond to. And, and unless you have a clear idea of what you want them to laugh at or respond to, uh, I don't believe in this idea that, that uh, I once had, and I've heard a lot of comedians talk about nowadays, still like still hold on to like, if an audience laughs at it, it's funny, it's comedy, it's okay. And and understanding for myself that comedy comes from this place of fear, uh, it's you can get people to laugh at anything it, that they are afraid of. Mm-hmm. But getting them to laugh at something that they're afraid of can have negative consequences. Getting people to uh, laugh at jokes that, that are geared towards uh, different groups uh, helps support the fear that they might have of the other. And so yeah. just because they'll laugh at something doesn't mean that it's why, why, why laugh at that? What, what are you, what is the idea underneath it that you're trying to, uh, even allow relief from of, of a stress or a strain? It, do you feel like that there is a moral, because this is something I talk about with my writers who are created, like a lot of my writers who are mm-hmm. in TV right now, which is, is there a moral obligation since we are in a format that communicates to more people of this country than our news and journalism does. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that there is a moral responsibility that we have as comedians or entertainers to infuse the work that we have with what we believe is the morality of now and the future, you know, versus being like what some people would say is like, well, we're entertainers. So as long as we entertain, it's fine versus saying, no, like our entertainment is going to have unconscious biases in it. And we want to make sure that we are, you know, helping us enter into a more mindful uh, space. And, and so I'm always interested in if, if you feel like there is a moral responsibility. I know I have a moral responsibility for myself in the comedy or art that I produce. I know that I have a moral responsibility in teaching any students like that, uh, like this is what you are doing. This is the power that you have in undertaking this craft. Um, I'm hesitant uh, to like prescribe a a morality on all, and I think that comes from my own past religious indoctrination childhood of like not wanting to tell everybody that you have to live a certain way. Um, that is the way that I believe that makes sense to me. Um, so yeah, I I I I wish that more people who had this power would take the time to like self-reflect on the power that they have and, and question why are they choosing to use it uh, towards one result over another. Yeah. I was going to say, um, I think that in regards to the power dynamic in a joke, mm-hmm. like when we have a shifting power and the, and the end of the joke, we have the, 
the one person feeling less and less power. It shows me empowering mm-hmm. uh, for both parties that they feel more comfortable, more more empowered, rather than like the reputation of one person is, you know, dramatically increased, and and another person is the butt of the joke. I mm-hmm. mean, when you when you think about self depreciating humor, it's like you're actually you might be making yourself kind of a joke about yourself, but you're actually kind of empowering yourself and empowering because people understand you, they communicate, they uh, connect with you on a human level. Sure. And also in regards to like fart jokes or something, it would think ripping off the, the poop being yeah. funny, <laughs> like how the fear of reputation being uh, affected, you know, all oh, this is breaking decorum. And that fear is kind of like what makes it always funny because it's like, it's not appropriate to, yeah. to fart or whatever it is, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah. I'm glad that we jumped back to this topic. Because now, <laughs> now I can say this thing that I was thinking before, which is I think that like poop jokes, fart jokes, all those great uh, sex jokes, I think they, uh, they, they're funny for two reasons, at least two, two that come to mind. One is definitely the inappropriateness of it. And I think yeah. there's that like uh, the things that are not to be spoken are funny because uh, we're we're dealing with the fear of not talking about these things. But isn't it different with like poop or fart? Because it's like, it's not like, oh, like let's not bring up, you know, Hannah's grandmother's death. Like pooping and <laughs> farting are things that we do every day. Yeah. Like yeah. probably has happened yeah. sometime in the past 20 minutes in this room. Yeah. And there's this weird, I think it's this weirder thing of something that we all do constantly. And yet our society has shamed us into yeah. feeling mm-hmm. like we shouldn't be doing it or we shouldn't be admitting to something that is so human absolutely yeah yeah uh yeah i agree uh, and i think uh. that, and i think that we all do them every day and that it's such a common thing is why they're so like, like i used to tell students like uh like i have no problem with with fart jokes uh it, and if you want to end a scene with like some funny like moment like you need to, you need to put a button on the scene a fart always works it's like <laughs> you can get bored with them after a while but it'll always work yeah, um, but it's all I, about the timing of the fart, you know, like when, oh, yeah. the best timing, I think, will make it even funnier, like yeah. a, a serious meeting and you think oh, everything's all serious and then all of a sudden something rips in and it's like that's where the comedy really comes mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the other the other thing about that is just that I think they remind us of our mortality. I think like mm-hmm. the, that that we are beings that like excrete or have yeah have any kind of excretion yeah. uh, reminds us that we are. Like we're not these like gods that we think we are in our minds. Yeah. We we have these physical bodies that are decaying and producing things that uh yeah that are not perfectly clean and pristine. You know, like someone made a joke about how in yoga class she loves when people fart because uh, that's the that's the perfect time when yeah. you know you think yeah. you're at your highest. You kind of put the illusion that you're yes. like you mm-hmm. know achieving higher states of consciousness, yep. and then remind her. Yeah. I yeah. when I started yoga, I, my first year, I was like, I'm going to do 365 classes in 365 uh-huh. days, and I did it yeah. right before my teacher training because I am a yeah. weird overachiever like that. And the entire time, I had this fear where I was just like, I was like, and I and I knew it was going to happen, and I wanted it to happen. I was like, I can't, I'm terrified, but I can't wait for the day that in the quietest moment, I'm going to fart in a yoga class because I just knew that the the fear of it happening was so much worse than just being like, I did it. And then when it happened, I told every, I was so proud of myself because I was like, you guys, and I still finished the class and I still went back to that studio and I was so, it was so exciting to me to practice bravery mm-hmm. and yeah. just to know that like, it's okay. I lived because it was literally built up in my mind as one of the most scary things. Like, that just shows you how silly and protected my life is right now. Where I'm like, the most terrifying thing to me was 
will I pass gas during yoga <laughs> class? Um, but yeah, I think that it, it is, and it does come at a time where I think it's like our bodies are really, really good at giving us these most people when their body breaks down or their back goes out i'm like i don't see that as an annoying thing i really see that as my body communicating to me that either you know physically emotionally or mentally i am getting a little bit too big for my britches and yeah. is kind of bringing me back down to a humble connected place and, and I, I appreciate that oh. i'm trying to think now about uh the question of death like uh you mentioned your grandmother's death or something and I, so that is a place where I think there is still potential for comedy, but what the why has to be questioned. And, and like, what is the joke that you're making there? And while uh, a joke is not immediately coming to mind, um, I feel like if there was something you wanted to say about your grandmother, your death, I mean, uh, funeral eulogies are sometimes the greatest places for comedy. Uh, I've seen some amazing ones where, um, somebody is speaking about this person who's just passed and uh, talking about their lives and there's so much humor there and I think it's because those are moments where our fear tension is so wound up that we're like craving that release and so finding those moments where you can laugh at this person who has passed the why is uh, coming from a cathartic place of celebrating this life in connection with the death that just happened. So I think, uh, but at the same time, if your joke is like, <laughs> look at this guy he died and uh, nobody likes him, then your why is about like separating from. Well, I think that goes back to intention. Cause I think, mm -hmm. you know, when people, I think at a, in a non-professional comedy standup uh, situation is where you can feel intention much clearer. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you're at like a work setting or a funeral, I think it's clear to understand someone's intention of I'm making a joke to break the tension and mm -hmm. remind us all that we're human and we love this person versus, you know, I'm feeding my own ego or yeah. I'm trying to one up the person next to me. Like in a comedy club, everyone's job is like to make the other people laugh. And so I think it can be harder to tell what the intention is. But I know that I've been at plenty of parties where I can, you know, and I've been someone who did this. I recently was in Los Angeles and um, one of the defense mechanisms I use when I feel very vulnerable and I don't belong in a group is I just start making like just any joke that mm -hmm. will come to me. It's very awkward. And that's very different than when I'm teaching in a class where I use a lot of my humor to sort of expose myself in a way where I know most of my writers have been through something like that, but I know that they're really scared to talk about it. So if I present it in the class of myself in a way where they can go, oh, me too, it helps yeah. them open up so that we can get further in the class because the more vulnerable they are. And I just think that, you know, a funeral is definitely one of those places where you can feel the intention, the love that someone mm -hmm. has for someone and they can make the most atrocious jokes possible. And it will feel so loving and wonderful mm -hmm. because you can feel that intention Whereas I'm not always sure when I'm at an improv show or where mm -hmm. I'm kind of like, I think their intention is to further their career. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to me, I'm yeah. never going to find that funny. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, you mentioned something before about uh, like a, a stand up club being like a safe space for jokes, something like that. And it made me think about how I feel like so much of stand up comedy uh, for, for a very long time in stand up's history. Um, 
there was so much suppression of speech in a political societal way mm -hmm. that saying the things that are not being said became such an important, like that was an important space to hear the things that were mm -hmm. not being said. And it almost got connected that like the comedians are the ones saying the things that nobody wants to say. I feel like maybe, maybe it was, this is me totally theorizing and pulling stuff out of my butt. Uh, maybe it's since like social media and the internet mm -hmm. has grown so much that has created so much more uh, freedom to express yourself that that it feels like not that that space isn't needed in the same way, but that a lot of comedians walk into it with this idea of like with almost uh, I guess almost, with almost like an ego of like this is my space to say everything. It's so important that I get to yeah. say everything that I want to say, and it's like uh, but. Those things are being said. The, the, yeah. These ideas that you're saying, oh, I need to hold on. I'm also careful because I believe very strongly in like freedom of expression, but it just feels like the the idea that they have a power. And I'll, I'll let me include that us comedians have this like power to say whatever we want, whenever we want, because freedom of speech. Uh, if our actual purpose is to serve through comedy, um, and and, and like give release to ideas. I think holding on to that idea is not really connecting with what, what I think most audiences need right now. Well, it, I think, you know, as our societies change, like the value and the purpose of that space has changed mm -hmm. similar to like a movie theater, mm. you know, before yeah. like you couldn't see movies at home. And so movie theaters have a slightly different experience and purpose. They mm -hmm. do now that, you know, we have Netflix and I think, you know, comedy clubs used to be the speakeasy. And now I mm -hmm. feel like they're more like church because mm. of the accessibility of social media and the internet and the fact that, you know, even our news and politics are at a place where, you know, the things that are allowed to be said are not monitored as much. And I think that's probably why we are now feeling more of this internal need for a form of morality that's mm -hmm. coming through the people who have been doing this for decades. Whereas like, you know, politicians have not necessarily been cracking jokes for the amount of time that comedians really have. Right. And so I think that that's going to change. And I, I've seen that in the past, like, five years specifically, where I was just like, I remember waking up one day and being like, when the hell did Sarah Silverman start getting, po like, I mean, but she's like the queen of the fart joke, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and to see her move into a space where she's taking so much political and social responsibility, I was just like, something has shifted. Mm -hmm. And and so, yeah, I think that the role of a comedy club is definitely, you know, has changed even and, and evolved. And, you know, I think that's also something clear with, um, you know, Hannah Gadsby's work mm -hmm. on Netflix with Nanette. If anyone hasn't seen that, please uh, watch it immediately. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it seems to me that the uh, theme we're going on now is democratization, democratization of comedy and how it relates to a democracy. Mm -hmm. It's like how we have more and more people getting in on it and more interconnectedness, more ability to communicate. And uh, one question that came up for me was, uh, you know, why people don't make too many menstruation jokes like we think of that as being a female specific body function mm -hmm. but it's it's something that's taboo and why women don't go out there and make more menstruation or jokes about their uh health or something that that it would normalize and kind of make more um you know and men also relate with their girlfriends in their periods and stuff mm -hmm. like that but something that's something so taboo for some reason i feel like that mm -hmm. and that Power keg seems like, and we had an episode where we dealt with, uh, a, we talked to a woman who was promoting 
women's health and women's hygiene. But w- w- what do you think? Well, I mean, I think I think that for the, to begin with, uh, I would say like women probably, you know, I would say 10 years ago, women weren't going to touch jokes about it because it is so deeply rooted, rooted tribally across mm. the world as something that is really seen as dirty and shameful. Mm. If we go back to most, most of it religiously, culturally, you know, we're talking about women being locked in huts, not able to interact with people, mm. the curse of, you know, the gods or for original sin being blamed on women. And, and it's so deeply ingrained in so many parts of us that this is a shameful thing. Mm. And that's still something that is a huge issue. And so I would say that most female comedians, when they were coming up, especially when it is such a sexist, I mean, it's been yeah. really, really hard for female comedians for a very long time. It's just like, they're like, why the hell would I throw myself under a bus? Let me, you know, like, that's just like, maybe one day, you know, like that's like having a trans black woman as president. We're like, let's mm. aim for that. But like, I'm not expecting it to happen in the next couple of years. Um, and so I think that that was what was happening for so long. And women, f- women first had to make their space in comedy by being better than men at men's comedy before mm. we've been able to make our own space and say we can talk about this. And I do think that men don't talk about it because I think men are inherently terrified of it. Mm. I think most men are just like, the, the, I'm sure when you said it, like collectively everyone listening, all the men were probably just like, oh dear Lord. <laughs> you know, I just think there's this like weird intense fear of like men just really not understanding and instead of just like Googling or asking <laughs> someone and learning more about yeah. what menstruation is and and everything. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there should be more menstruation jokes. I think it should be something that I wish we could normalize more. Um, I mean, especially as someone who currently hasn't menstruated for four years due to an IUD, which is completely healthy. So please don't send me emails or letters. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would just say from a female perspective, I think if I were, that's something I think in my writing Five years ago, I never would have brought it up because I was like, I have to compete against people who would never touch the subject matter. Mm. And now it's probably something that I absolutely would because I'm much more socially and politically minded as I've gotten older. Yeah. And also deals, I think, with the, the, the typical joke I would hear if I did hear any joke is PMSing mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. And, and how that joke about, oh, my girl's just PMSing. You know, is, is kind of almost an edge to it. You know what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say. Uh, yeah. Y- I agree, of course, uh, on why uh, less women comedian might joke about it. Although I, I've seen, I, I almost, when, when you first posed the question, I was like, I've heard and said and done tons of jokes about menstruation, but I was part of a group called Fucked for a while, so that's <laughs> part of that. Uh, but I do, I, I would agree that probably there are there there has been historically a lot of women who could not joke about that, mm-hmm. and I feel like yeah, there have been tons of jokes by men, but it's all from the male perspective, which is usually more. Of like, how does it affect us? Uh, PMS period jokes, yeah. uh, as a fo- as opposed to like the actual process of what it is. It's yeah. it's more about what what's scary about it for a man, yeah. uh, not having any understanding of what it is. So, and I yeah. would just like to attack. Uh, I think the most famous joke, which was like, I don't trust anything that bleeds for five days and doesn't die, and I'd be like screw you i was like i really trust something that can bleed for five days and doesn't die (laughs) and keeps freaking going because i'm just like what like we are super strong and especially this awesome part of our body which again is the most resilient and amazing you know cradle of birth Mm -hmm. um that's another thing i think is i think unconsciously 
there is an intense fear of anything with women and procreation because, mm-hmm. you know, like it is such this magical, amazing thing that, you know, we have the ability to give birth and like to grow life. And I just think that um, a lot of the stigma against those body parts really does come from this feeling of inadequacy or this need to have power over it. Mm-hmm. And that men have, you know, really like tried to have power over it because there's been this unconscious realization of like, oh shit, I can't do that. So I need to position position myself so that I can control that thing mm-hmm. that I don't actually have the power to do. And I think that unconsciously that's, I mean, I'm sure some douchebags have done that consciously, but I think it's <laughs> on an unconscious level. Yeah. I think that's why men are always just like, power build it bigger do this and women have always just been like i don't know let's hug like like (laughs) let's reach out because we're like we're all we know we're powerful our bodies are fucking amazing and you know so i understand you know but um but yeah periods aren't gross guys like (laughs) it's very natural it's awesome it's the miracle of life i mean kind of glad i'm not getting mine right now (laughs) but um it's really just to save money on the pink tax so yeah so also i was thinking about how relating to uh, otherification and how, mm. uh, like a friend of mine was making, like, it was, I think it was like a couple years, several years ago, but he was making jokes about Islamic, Islamophobic, like Islamophobic mm. jokes, like all, all Muslims are terrorists. But how can we, um, how can we make, how can we riff off that but still have an inclusive comedy? You know, like you're working on the stereotype, but then you're trying to make it more inclusive. Does it require the person to be in the in group or what do you think about the in group, out group? Um, um I, I know where where I've in the past been able to marry these ideas, and I and I've I'm careful with this as a teacher of like teaching students like this is how you get away with it, yeah. like like mm-hmm. talking about these topics because I, I would get I I was shocked how many times students would approach me with like but how do you do those jokes like how do you get away yeah. with it and I'd be like why do you want to get away <laughs> yeah. with something yeah. like what is your intention here is your intention to like um, but one way that my group would be able to like touch on these topics uh, was usually with this idea of the power structure and the idea that the ideas themselves are scary or come from ignorant minds. Uh, and it almost plays with this idea of the clown. Uh, I remember we had this one sketch that, that many of people in my group use as an example of uh, it was, we called it the Reverend and it was this like Southern Baptist Reverend character who would come out on stage and preach to the audience. Some of the most hateful, terrible things that like we could write into joke forms. But it was so clear that this person who was speaking was the joke of the sketch that, that we're, we were commenting on this person that has these views that are so contradictory and extreme and like based in just their own paranoia and fear. Mm. And so we managed to touch on this idea of like these things that people are scared of this other in concept, but it was with the idea of, having these views is the thing to be laughed at more than the views and supporting them. And that's why I think earlier you were talking about your friend and I was like, I don't want to ever tell somebody who is from a, f- from a specific group that I am not a part of that they cannot make jokes about themselves because yeah. there's a certain amount of uh, power in reclaiming that and using it for your own purpose to touch on those ideas. However, they, reflect on you that i like i i don't want to say my morality and saying i can't make these jokes should apply to you and your comedy so the idea that you know in the in the, the the preacher <clears throat> example <clears throat> that the an, an individual with a fixed mindset is the joke <clears throat> not 
a man of God or a person, you know, or the the people that this right. like, character is speaking yeah. against. But the joke is actually attacking the idea of someone who has an extraordinarily fixed mindset. And yeah. and I, th- I think also yeah. in, in, with that character, they were the contradictions in what they were preaching. Oh, that, the, that, hypocrisy the, the hypocrisy. Of, and, yeah. Interesting. There right. was talk about love yeah. in the sketch and loving each other mixed with like, but not these people like we have to hate for mm-hmm. all these reasons. Yeah, so. like like people who will speak out against, you know, the like, you know, Leviticus, like gays are going to mm-hmm. hell, but they have like tons of tattoos on their arms. And I'm like, if you read the verse right before the gay right. one, I think it says if you tattoo your body, you're going to hell. And I always found that quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Um hypocrisy. Sure. In, sure. In yeah. That. So why don't we take a moment to go around and tell your favorite joke or oh, uh, no, joke no. that comes to mind? <laughs> I don't know. Do you want to oh, try no. any oh, joke no. that comes to mind? Do you want to take a shot at that? Or uh, I, I, I feel like I've, this is like the, the, the job. This is the responsibility that only ever falls on comedians is like, oh, you're a comedian. Why don't you tell me a joke? Yeah. Uh, I'd almost rather tell a story of a time yeah. that I was um, – I was driving home from uh, a late night rehearsal. My group used to rehearse till like one, two in the morning. And I was driving home down Canal Street and suddenly traffic stopped. And I realized, oh, this is a, this is a traffic stop. This is a DUI stop. And I may have been drinking, not enough not to drive, but enough to scare the crap out of me. And I pulled up and the cop uh, had me roll down my window. And he's like, where are you coming from? And I was like, oh, I'm coming from a rehearsal. He's like, rehearsal for what? Because it was two in the morning. I was like, it's a comedy group. We rehearse late at night. He's like, Oh, you're a comedian? Why don't you tell me a joke? <laughs> and I was like, the only thing that came to my mind was like, oh, you're a cop. Why don't you go shoot somebody? Like, just this, this feeling of like, why do I have this responsibility? Nobody's like, oh, you're a doctor. Um, can you like take out my gallbladder? Comedians always are expected to be funny on the spot. And it's, it's tough for us, man. Yeah. It's tough no, for us. I no, know. I understand because I, in my dating profile, I've actually had to put, um, if you start talking to me about writing, I will give you an invoice for four hundred dollars yeah. for that session because yeah. this is my job. And I was so sick of going on dates where someone's like, "So the screenplay," and I'm like, "No." If I were a dentist, you would not suddenly open mm-hmm. your mouth and ask me to check my cavity. And with that, I will just say I don't think this is so much a joke as it's just like the sadness that is my life. I think the favorite, my favorite thing that's happened to me in the past few years is, you know, as a teacher, uh, I was working really hard to be a great teacher and I haven't always had the best relationship with my family. And so um, one day on Yelp, I noticed that my father had reviewed me as a teacher on Yelp <laughs> and he gave me four out of five stars. <laughs> and I would always tell people, I'm like, and that's why I spent my 20s sleeping with men even though i had no attraction to (laughs) was because my and then i asked him and i was like dad why'd you give me four out of five stars and he was like well if i'd given you five everyone would know that we're related (laughs) and i was like that's so mean (laughs) and then i talked to my stepmom and my stepmom made him change it to five stars but um but yeah so if anyone out there thinks that they have a complicated relationship with their father at least they didn't review you on yelp and give you four out of five stars (laughs) Um, so one, th- one joke that was going through my mind <laughs> was, uh, and it keeps interfering with me. That's what I want to talk. Yeah. It's a meme, actually. It's a quick joke, but, um, don't get into a pillow fight with the, with death unless you're, um, prepared to deal with the repercussions. see i love that i'm like um although i think my humor is like dad grandma humor except for like then really 
dark, dark, twisted stuff. Because, yeah. or well, that's something that I'd be interested to, as because you know you write, mm-hmm. right? So right, right, correct. <laughs> um, so I was uh, I write very dark, twisted. Lo- you know, all my features and my plays. You know, uh, I mean, I've gotten fired off of multiple projects because they were like, "Oh my god, like this is disgusting." Like you know, one of my favorite reviews was like what must have happened to Miss Hines in her childhood to make her think that anyone would want to watch this. <laughs> and I was like, I have a list. <laughs> um, but no, and then I started writing short form for TV mm-hmm. and it was the first time, like all I can write is comedy when I do short form for TV is, and I just thought that that was really weird and, and interesting. And I feel like a lot of writers that I work with, they talk about how in different forms, you know, these different sides of themselves, mm-hmm you know, come out. And so I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that of like when you change the activity or the form of what you do, is there like a different personality or different part of yourself that you think maybe was hidden in different areas that might come out and, and play when you're in a different type of format, or if you've seen that with the, the artists that you've mentored? Yeah. Um, hmm, 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 hmm. good question. I'm thinking primarily for myself, what I've written the most of is sketch, um, which is all about like this kind of like short, know your full, like, or by the, by the time you're done, you, it's kind of like, you're talking about usually one thing. It's kind of uh, essentializing your joke down to uh, a nugget. Um, other stuff that I've written is more like free writing or uh, I guess I've written like one or two short plays kind of things that that have tried to be comic and i know i struggle with my comic voice as much in those things like because uh when you're maintaining a joke for three to five minutes it's different when you're maintaining like an overarching premise for an hour-long project right so like the the narrative the comedy narrative versus the joke as because like in sketch it's like you know you can build around a single joke it's like Mm -hmm. a little seize candy yeah Versus like a lasagna, right? You know, Ooh. which is is narrative. Where I a lot of the, I've worked with a lot of sketch writers who want to go into TV comedy, mm-hmm. and it's one of the things they struggle with the most is how to get out of that nugget form and find narrative through where the because sketches are normally for for the writers I've worked with the sketches are normally born out of the jokes, and when mm-hmm. you're doing a long form normative, it has to come out of the character yeah. Yeah. and the story, which is kind of hard for some people to to wrap their head around. Um, but I don't know if you've experience that i just yeah. I'm tr- i just want to know if i'm a weirdo no no i, I, I mean <laughs> what i was actually thinking was uh, with a longer form what the main thing you have to focus there less on the jokes and more on the complexity of the character mm. yeah and really understanding like the depth of that character's wants and desires it has to last longer than whatever that three minute single yeah. uh intention is for the sake of that sketch yeah uh, i mean even in a three to five minute sketch you can have a character that changes and shifts intentions based on what's happening um but yeah, if you're if you're maintaining that character over an hour long piece and possibly like within that piece time spans, uh, you you can't just your character has to be a more fully developed, uh, fully developed person that that at least then the actor can then put more on top of when they when they mm-hmm. come to it. Yeah, uh, one technique I used uh, for some pieces I wrote was that coming up with the framework is so absurd, right? Very absurd framework. Mm-hmm. Like for example, I was working on a piece about. The bureaucracy in intergalactic or interdimensional uh, dimensions. So he's like a bureaucrat, okay. and then being very truthful to you know what what the rea- how that play out in reality, or if that was true, and being very truthful to the mundane and and being attention to detail. 
So being very truth, being truthful seems to be the mm-hmm. uh, the way we get comedy, we get humor. Yeah. yeah, truth truth is really important, especially in clowning. Um, yeah, the, like the first thing you learn from being a clown is the importance of of just honesty and vulnerability. Of just like um, I know one of the first exercises I teach to almost every class is just uh, it's a minute long monologue where it's just talk about what's happening to you right now and just yeah. get in the habit of like checking in with yourself and being like, this is what's actually happening. Uh, before, when you asked me like, what is the joke? What is one joke you could think? The only thing I could think of like, well, what's going on with me right now? I've been suppressing a belch for the entire <laughs> 50 minutes of this podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that moment of truth. Maybe I should have just gone with that instinct. Cause I got to laugh. Yeah. Well, I started with a frog in my throat. Yeah. I mean, I was like, oh, and I was like, oh, you know, yeah. but no, I think it's so interesting because I feel like, you know, I do meditative writing, right? <laughs> um, which I curse more than any meditation person ever because, like, I need meditation. It's not that I'm, you know. Um, but what you just said is exactly the core of what I talk about with people is where we use, you know, guided visual meditation to find the absolute truth and to be so present in the moment because I just, you know, to me that's art in general, whether you do it, use it to paint or to make a joke or to create a drama um, or to move your body that ability to be so present and actually listen and be brave enough to put that either on a page or to say it out loud, I think that is the absolutely core, absolute core of of art in mm-hmm. general. And you know, I think that a lot of people think of comedy more as something you construct because mm-hmm. I get that a lot with screenwriting. People think you make it up, you construct it, and I'm like, so much of it. I mean, yes, you have to know your craft for when your artistry doesn't show up or when you just can't be vulnerable Mm -hmm. because life is just shitting on you. But if that practice of opening up to that exact moment and and that truth, like I tell people, I'm like, when you do, this like tension happens in the room and everyone starts to pay attention. Mm -hmm. And and then you don't have to rely on your craft in that moment. You really can tell the truth and you're going to get like pure communication, which is what, you know, I think art is. And you know, I hadn't really thought about that when it comes from like comedy in like, you know, the the, the format that you do it. Cause mm-hmm. I'm mostly because I think I just admire you guys and I've, you know, like think what you guys do is kind of magic. But, but that sounds exactly like what I'm teaching my writers who are working on like crazy dramas. Sure, sure. Yeah. And uh, it makes me think I, I would always say like the analytical mind is for the rewrites, it's for second yes, drafts. The yes. first draft just kind of. Uh, like getting the students to understand like sitting down and just writing is that first step. Like write, mm-hmm. writing is not thinking about everything you're going to write and then just transcribing it. It's yeah. about just sitting there, allowing whatever comes to you to get down on the paper. Uh, I tell students, if you're stuck writing a scene, just write and then somebody enters and then figure out whatever your brain tells you to say after mm-hmm. that thing. Like, like surprise yourself by throwing yourself a curveball and see where your mind takes that next. Uh, and then you can figure out later in a rewrite when you look back on it, like, does this all make sense in a way that I want to, uh, like that I want this idea to be presented. But when you're first writing, it's just gotta be like, whatever is happening to you, that that's the most honest, truthful thing you can say. So then are you a believer that an artist, whether it's comedy or anything like that, we discover our voices that are already inside of us or that we construct them ourselves? Mixed. Uh, I I think there are plenty of artists who do construct. Um, I think for at least me, I'm more interested in like constantly digging deeper, finding like what is what is at my core, and that's again like like I said, I, I have my beliefs. I have the beliefs that I teach, 
but I'm not going to say like all things are of this type. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's great. My, my personal belief is that, you know, like you surrender to your voice, mm-hmm. but then you curate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, and and true. and especially those that are successful, I think it always comes from you know because it's a messy child, mm-hmm. and so this idea that first you have to just get to know what your voice is mm-hmm. and how it lives inside of you because it's mostly made made up of the psychological issues from your childhood and fears, and that then you curate that through your craft to be able to communicate in a way where you know people are on board with it. Yeah, you had uh, four principles, I think, pac- uh, presence. Patience, focus, and practice. Yeah. You've mentioned so. If you can uh, talk a little bit about how that informs, sure. Yeah, uh, th- those um, they came up many years ago. I, I started getting some one-on-one coaching, and we had to do these exercises that I think were based in like free writing, and then kind of like narrowing it down to like what is the one word that represents this, like the way that you want to be or what you need. Uh, and those are the principles that came up for me. And it was like four days of doing the same uh, exercise. Um, Presence is basically uh, is connected through everything I've done since um, I think I, this is something I, I didn't mention in this interview. I used to be a lawyer for a little while and I left the hell out of that after two years of practicing to go back into the arts um, and being present in like what in the moment, in my needs of the moment, in the reality of the moment, it just became so important to me. Um, now I'm going to remember that. focus uh, coming from a past of uh, heavy drug and alcohol use uh, into a current sober mixed sobriety kind of sense. The idea of just being able to like focus on what it is that I'm actually pursuing as opposed to like uh, allowing my mind to get like totally lost. Um, yeah, that was important. Oh, yeah. pra- practice has been like something that I wish I had learned to do when I was younger. Um, I, I always thought that like, I would just achieve things and like yeah. things would just change and really learning that, like just sitting down, uh, I have a big sign over my desk that just says, you don't need to finish today. You just need to start. Um, and I try to live by that as much as possible, which is like, what is the next little thing that I can do without trying to think about like that? I has to achieve this final thing. And I feel like that's the, at the heart of practice is just being willing to go back to something every day for, small incremental sometimes completely non-noticeable results um presence patience patience Patience, uh this is my worst that one's up there because i'm not good at it and it's something i have to put uh focus on um but yeah just allowing just allowing things to happen and and not needing results immediately not not chasing that like feeling of where is that good thing and i want it now playing the long game Yeah. yeah yeah good good so um, I just want to give a couple of quick announcements. And I'll give you guys a chance to plug whatever you'd like. Um, Ready for Brooklyn, listen to Ready for Brooklyn. Ready for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations for listeners like you. So to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. And if you'd like to sponsor the Truth to Power show, Go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power and you can click on the sponsor the show link. Every cent helps us continue to stay on air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible. Um, again, that's readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Ready for Brooklyn is proud to announce that uh, we are launching an after school program that has started already in 2019. 
building media literacy through media making and using a hands-on approach guided by local professionals. If you'd be interested in participating or donating to this program, please go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash afterschool. And remember, all donations are tax-deductible. Also, you can uh, find our apps at readyforbrooklyn.org slash iPhone or slash Android, and you can listen to us on the go. So if you're listening on the computer, you know, don't keep yourself chained up. Uh, listen on your phone, and you can put on the earphones and tune out and and as you're, list, as you're riding the subway. Uh, also, to keep in touch with our news and uh, programming, go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. So uh, do you have any uh, plugs you want to make? Or? Uh, plugs always make me like think, oh, what am I doing with my life right now? <laughs> um, I think just uh, my website, joegallon.com, uh, actor, comedian, clown, open to perform anything. Uh, <laughs> yeah, give me work. Give me yeah. work, audience. <laughs> <laughs> and Jessica, you want to um, plug Yeah, in? as always, um, I've got a lot of articles and free writing exercises on meditativewriting.org. And I do have an awesome, I have a screenwriting class and a meditative writing class starting April 20th and April 27th. And so any fans of the show, if you just put in Truth to Power as your reference, um, can throw in a free uh one-on-one session at a nice little $350 value for you guys. Yeah, good. And also people can find out more about uh, myself and my poetry at vjrnathan.com uh, or you can follow us on uh, Twitter, Truth to Power Show, or I just changed my Instagram to Truth to Power Show, so you can, check, you can find me on Instagram as well. Uh, feel free to follow us and uh, and read book on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening a little bit to uh, Gems, uh, Beachwood Canyon, and we'll go out with that. Thank you. 